Hello and welcome to this edition of the Farm Jacket podcast. My name is Nick Hussey and I create Farm Jacket and I design them and I talk to interesting people um, about their lives and just have a good old chat. Sometimes it's not too deep and sometimes it's very deep. Um, sometimes it's silly and sometimes it's very serious. It doesn't really matter. The most important thing is to talk. Talking is important and talking is very important for men because as we know we can be a bit shit at doing that and we shouldn't be because otherwise it can make us ill. Uh, so this week it's Simon Middleton. Uh, Simon is very similar to me in that he has done some brand consultancy uh, and that he owns his own small uh, clothing company um, and is an, a serial entrepreneur and uh, we share quite a lot of similar sort of tastes and views. Um, and what I was keen to do was to make sure that we had a really nice chat but didn't just end up slapping each other on the back and agreeing. Uh, and I hopefully we have done that. Um, if you're a sort of centre-lefty, you're probably going to agree with this. What I hope is, if you're not a centre-lefty and you disagree, that you, I would really welcome uh, your feedback and discussion uh, on things that you do agree with, agree and disagree with on comments or uh, email or anything you like, really. Uh, social media, I think that's what it's all about. It's fine to disagree as long as we don't end up shitting on each other, basically. So, on with the podcast. Uh, enjoy. Here is Simon Middleton. Here is Nick. Hello. Morning, Simon. Ah, good morning. Hi, I'm so sorry about the delay. I won't bore That's you with right. the complex domestic logistics I got involved in this morning. Ooh, <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> how you doing? What's up? I'm fine, thank you very much. How are you? I'm just stretching. I'm in my back garden, pressing the wrong oh, button on my phone. Um, so um, I thought if I'm going to um, have a chat, I might as well do it in the sun. Oh, you've got sun? I don't have sun. I've got... I live on the Suffolk coast, and it's grey and rather green here at the moment. I'm sorry, it's not my fault. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's not fair. Guilty conscience. (laughs) I'm sitting in my back garden too, more or less. I've got a little office in the back garden. But but the sky is just sort of pale grey, which never mind. But I'm going out west tomorrow on my honeymoon. Um, I'm going down to Cornwall, so not passing by your way. That's um, that's a few weeks after you got married. It is. I got married this uh, this Saturday. Will be our uh, third week. Yes, yes. Thrills. And who did you marry? I <laughs> I married uh, Mary Ann, who um, through uh, she's delightful, of course. Otherwise, we wouldn't have got married. <laughs> but but <laughs> the, the the short version of the story is that we knew each other about thirty five years ago. We worked for the same mm-hmm. company for about a year. And lost touch complete. We were just workmates, that's all. Um, lost touch for 35 years. Had, we had no concept of where anyone was in the planet. We, you know, and then our sort of paths crossed again when we both needed them to, and uh, about three and a half years ago. And um, you yeah, so now we're married. To each other's arms. Was it, was it immediate sparks? Was it a gradual sort of realisation? No, it, it was fairly... I think we both knew that there was something special about it, yeah. Oh, um, that's, that's yeah, nice. so it, it's lovely. So um, we've we've both inherited sort of a blend. It's a blended family, I think that's what they call it. Mm-hmm. So we've both got two grown-up children, and uh, so uh, it's lovely. Yeah, it's great. Well, and um, so you say you're travelling to Cornwall today. 
Tomorrow, yeah, yes, we're taking our, uh, well, I suppose you could call it a honeymoon, it's, you know, it's a modest honeymoon in a, in a little cottage in South Cornwall, yeah, near Polperro, which is a place I know quite well, and uh, yeah, it'd be very nice. I went to Cornwall last summer, and uh, yeah, it was super nice for the kids, apart from the fact that they slept three hours a night, um, and uh, it took about three hours each morning to sort of get them into a place where they you know, didn't want to scrape our faces off the razor blade. But um, <laughs> once, once we got to that lovely place, then it, it was it was great. So what we learned yeah. is don't get a really small place where everyone sleeps on top of each other because everyone will wake each other up and <laughs> uh, and then attempt to kill each other, which is a bad thing. Yeah, how old are your children? Uh, six and three. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, I remember those days, but a long, long, long time ago. My oldest is 37, so... Um, you know, all, I don't have to worry about things like that anymore, thankfully. Although, I dare say, when grandchildren turn up, then, you know, I'll have to start remembering those kind of, those issues, <laughs> the logistics of young children. So, but for the um, moment, <laughs> I have, I, I started recording before you came on this, my first phone call podcast. I can cut this out if you want, but if you're happy for me to include all this um, gubbins, then, uh, then I can do Oh, yeah. I, that's, I think that's the nature of our conversation, so I'm absolutely yeah. fine with it, yeah. Um, so we, so this is a podcast. I should do some sort of podcast introduction. I don't know. Um, but uh, basically, we we spoke on the phone. At, I think it's right at the beginning of this year, and then busyness and stuff got in the way, and we never got around to doing podcasts. And I finally got back to inviting you. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, your name is Simon Middleton, and I would like to define you roughly, although you have many other facets, as a an, an entrepreneur and brand consultant and brand builder, yeah, would you pretty, say that was accurate? That's pretty, that's pretty much it. I think, yeah, I'm, I, it, it, it more or less divides in two at the moment. I'm, on the one hand, I earn my living um, and get a great deal of challenge and pleasure from being a, cons, a consultant to other companies. So I get called in by various uh, people, um, quite often sort of premium and luxury brands in all kinds of sectors. So I'm working with a luxury chocolate and ice cream maker at the moment. I'm even working with a luxury shotgun maker at the moment, of all things, a sporting shotgun maker. But I've also worked with fabrics and textiles and all kinds of things. So I do that. And then the other half of my life is that I uh, seem to be in the habit of starting manufacturing brands, clothing brands, uh, particularly. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, quite. So um, and the latest one is called Blackshaw, and that's what I'm sort of putting probably m most of my waking hours into. Although you know, that's a long way from earning me a living, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that happens. We're at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So what I find really interesting is that you and I are very like in in a headline, are very very similar. So I am a an entrepreneur who started two clothing brands. And, yeah, yes. Um, I'm a straight white bloke in Britain who's got kids, um, la la la. <laughs> and then um, I'm a, also a consultant. I tend to consult in sort of brand and marketing, different area. But what's different, of course, is well, great many things. But the greatest difference is experience. And you are a proper, you know. I'm sure you'll be modest about this, but you're a proper brand consultant. You've written books on it, and you've done conferences and speaking, all that kind of stuff. I'm just a self-taught monkey who seems to be reasonably good at it. And I, I find that, you know, that, that really interesting, because when we spoke on the phone, I had no yeah. sense of sort of 
any sort of inferiority or superiority or anything like that. It was just a couple of blokes who have reasonably yeah. views of the world having a chat. Well, I, I mean, we're, we're in danger because we're nice blokes of getting into a sort of modesty battle. <laughs> we're sort of the, we're, it's the sort of opposite of Trumpism, isn't it? But the, um, but at the risk of doing that, I mean, actually, I, when I look at the world of brand strategy and consultancy and so on, I don't think of myself as a proper brand consultant at all. I, I, I always think of myself as just almost like a, uh, a gentleman amateur, if you know what I mean. I, because I don't use, I'm not part of a, uh, a bigger agency which has a big sort of research machine on, behind it and I don't have um, I don't have the experience of working on the, the rather sort of grand scales that some of the leading brand agencies do you know the, mm. <clears throat> the people you find in Soho who've been doing it for massive corporations for, for many years so I've, I've always played at the sort of solo consultant level with small to medium sized organisations and I do it in a really, really informal way. Yes, I've, I've written three books, two of which have you know, disappeared almost without trace, one of which has done really, really well. But mm. um, it's... I started late, um, so I don't think that actually the differences are that great. I just did lots of other things before that. I did. Are you self-taught as well? Yes, absolutely. I don't have a, I have a degree, but it's not in anything to do with marketing. I have my degrees in education. I trained as a primary school teacher. Um, I have so, this theory about um, education and um, boxes. So I used to work in film production and I never, okay. I used to sort of uh, talent hunt for new directors and uh, get sent loads of sort of reels on DVDs, whatever. And I go through them and I almost Exclusively, anyone who'd done a film degree, uh, they, they just had a very samey view of the world. And the people who right. did photography or graphic design or art or you know anything different, philosophy or whatever, tended to be the ones who innovated and had really interesting reels. And the people that I oh, find, yeah, I, and I find that often with people who have done business degrees, and this is less exclusive, they tend to have quite a fixed view of the world for their innovation. I think I think it's it's a stymied innovation because. For me, when I started designing clothing, it's probably the best example of that. I, I didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing. I mean, you know, all I knew was I really <laughs> liked the clothing and I knew what annoyed me yeah. and what didn't. But I now see that as, as a really important catalyst to innovation because I had no preconceived ideas. There's nothing to hold me back or intimidate me. All I wanted was a better result. And so it didn't matter. There was nobody there to say, well, we don't normally do it that way, mate. You know, I just said, well, yeah. I don't really care. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, uh, so I agree with that. Yeah, I yeah I absolutely agree. So I I started um, whether it's interesting or not, I don't know. But I I I was a copywriter in an ad agency. But I became a copywriter in an ad agency after the best part of a decade in the National Health Service as a nurse and then a nurse manager. Um, okay. So and I quit the National Health Service because. Uh, Basically, I wasn't very well for a while. I think we can talk freely about those sorts of issues. So way back uh, in the uh, the end of the 1980s, um, I, uh, I had, there was a sort of a family kind of tragedy. Um, I got unwell a few years after that. I sort of reacted a bit later. I held it all in for a while. Then I got quite ill, got quite depressed in the early 90s, and I left the NHS. Um, and 
I decided, uh, because I'd always had this notion that I wanted to be a writer. And I'd had a short career, five years in public relations, which is no home really for anyone who wants to actually be a writer. But um, So I decided to be a copywriter. So I went around knocking on agency doors in Norfolk and Suffolk and said, um, I'd like to be a copywriter, please. And they, they literally, in, in a couple of cases, laughed me out of the, their building. Um, mm. so that's ridiculous. You can't just rock up here in your early 30s and decide you want to be in an advertising copywriter. It doesn't work like that, mate. But, and of course they were right, except that about three weeks after one particularly unpleasant sort of mocking ejection from an agency. The agency boss phoned me up and said, my creative team has left, all of them have left to set up an agency on their own. I don't have any writers. Can you come and work for me? So, and that kind you, of... You, you were like the desperate last gasp he had yeah, left. But, yeah. but it gave you your opportunity. It did. So I started writing, and the first things I began to write, so I'm going, I'm going back to 1994, the first things I wrote were brochures for um, multi-york sofas. Multi-york went mm -hmm. bust a couple of years ago, but for a long, long, long time, it was a, a kind of leading premium British sofa manufacturer. And I used to name the sofas, uh, write bullshit descriptions about them, and, you know, the kind of thing you see and now see on the internet and on TV. In those days, it was in brochures. And again, the Club. Yeah, sorry, say again. The King's, I'm making up names, the King's Down Plum, the region of the Grand. <laughs> exactly. Exactly that sort of stuff, you know. And, and you'd wax poetic about this new phenomenon of shabby sheep, um, uh, etc. Um, and we, you know, all of the stuff, the fine oak frames, and I can still remember some of it. It was, anyway, it got me going and it, I really enjoyed it. And, um, and another agency hired me to do a similar job, but with uh, new housing developments. So I would make up the names of housing developments, estates, and then name the individual street, name the house types, and then write descriptions which justified it all. So they usually have some kind of route that you do a little bit of local history research, and, you know, and you'd end up kind of creating these whole little worlds. And uh, I, that's what got me started in copywriting. Then I got hired to be a full-time copywriter in one particular agency, and within a year or so, I was the creative director. Um, and I also... I knew nothing at all about anything, really. I just kind of learned fast. And then 10 years after that, I set up my own little consultancy doing brand strategy in 2005. And that's what I've sort of done ever since. And uh, cool. so there's, it, it, it really is true I'm gonna... that anyone can do anything, I think, really. Yeah, and that's what I was going to get to, really, is I was always trying to find these sort of these big umbrella sort of views of, uh, you know, how we can, you and I or listener can sort of get a grasp on things and then move forwards. And I think the really important thing is what I'm very interested in, you may have found this, is that I, I think a lot of people, I, I think wrongly, look up to entrepreneurs and go, oh, it'd be amazing, I wish I could do that. And obviously I do it for a reason. I do, I do actually like it. You know, it's really fucking hard and scary a lot of the time. Yes, and I it is. say that a lot. And I, I don't, I don't, understate that because it really is and I've been to, you know especially with Volpine, some pretty horrific stuff yeah. and yeah. not certainly not horrific on the scale of you know what goes on in the world but from a, from a sort of mental stress point of oh god yeah, I, I, I completely um, understand that situation absolutely because I've been through it myself so. yeah. and, and I think that but what's interesting is people have 
fascinated by the entrepreneurial journey because they really wish they could do it themselves. So, you know, people say that to me, uh, but they don't. And, and I think it's wise not to. If you don't want to, don't, because it's really not that easy. Yes, it is. Definitely, yes. very, very rarely are the route to riches or, or fame or anything like that. It's yeah. generally, yeah. It's, it's rewarding, but it's, you know, like everything that's rewarding, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the avoidance a, of a lot of work. job, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's I'm, a kind of continued student outlook of, you know, not, ha- not really having, willing to work hard, but not being willing to work hard on other people's terms. Um, and I, yeah. that's, I mean, I work my socks off. I work incredibly hard. And yet, if I don't want to, I don't. And so that's, or if I, if I want to work till midnight or later, I'll stay up till two in the morning writing something and then I'll do that. But if I want to sleep in, I'll do that as well. Um, mm. Within reason, there are some restrictions on that, <laughs> especially now I'm employed, um, my first employee in the, in the clothing brand, but, but the, I, so it's funny you should say that people look up to entrepreneurs because actually that's not my experience largely, apart from the kind of famous ones. My experience in my own just sort of wandering through life really is that people who get it kind of admire and look up and, and respect, people who kind of get it a little bit, so they're involved in some way. But people who don't who've never had the experience or just don't get it somehow are, are slightly cynical or skeptical they can't there's a tendency i think for people to assume that all entrepreneurs are making lots of money and and somehow yes. that you're doing something vaguely dishonest or vaguely antisocial and it's so, kind of a flim flammy almost sort of I, I think a lot of people say, yeah so I think or there is right exploitative you know I, I i think it's partly because i come from a uh, most of my friends and acquaintances are not in, well, it's, it's James, it's true, but most of my sort of long-standing friends are working in the public sector. They're, they're nurses and, and, and teachers and those sorts of people. And from a, I've been in that arena as well, of course, but they find it quite challenging and difficult to, to sort of first what it is that people like you and I do, they kind of, I think they think it might be easy or somehow slightly, not dishonest exactly, but slightly, you know, underhand in some way. So I'll give you Yeah, or, or lacking substance. Yeah. If, if I, I talk quite often about, you know, wanting to create jobs. Okay, that's one of the things I want to do with, with Blackshaw, the clothing brand. I want to create jobs. In, in Lowestoft, and and but some people think, oh, that's that's fantastic, good, for, you know, that's what the town needs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Other people will go, oh, that, what you really mean by that is you want to exploit people, you want you want to m- sort of milk people's energy in return for the full view of the world, though, surely. Yes, it is, but it's. I think there is the world sort of seems it's quite easy to to do that. For example, in the in the local media around here uh, about a year ago the, the whole my whole Blackshaw project got got sort of ran into a brick wall we got we got massively scammed and all our money got stolen by a pretend investor lots of money but we got it back uh, eventually we got it back via the bank they were gracious enough to to, to you know to, to cough up for the money I, I don't think they ever got it back but it caused an awful lot of you know, morale from a morale and mental health point of view it was devastating it really it killed the whole thing but we, I got interviewed in the 
by the local press and the local TV about this thing. I wanted to put the word out that these kind of things, scams, could happen. So I was really open about how we got scammed. I told the whole detail. And the vitriol that came online underneath the news, you know, the news stories, they have comment boxes now. Anyone can comment, of course. Mm. And that this tirade of sort of hate towards me, not towards the person who scammed me, saying, well, he's a fucking idiot. You know, of course, he deserves everything he gets. You know, these people coming in here thinking they can blah, create businesses, blah, blah. What an idiot. How's, it's incredible that the bank should give them back the money. They deserve to lose everything. It was absolutely incredible. It was a real kind of hatred when all I'd done, basically, was get robbed. And but it, uh, the, the simple fact was that I wasn't an elderly pensioner being robbed by a hoodie. I mm. was a middle-aged businessman being robbed by someone who at that moment was being smarter than I was. Which is and fine. People are allowed to give you different levels of of, uh, of sympathy, and that's their choice. But when people... Yeah. So I've experienced the same as this sort of... First of all, this willing somebody to fail, which I don't know... I don't know it, if yes, you, that's hit the nail on the head. British thing. It, I think this part of it is there's a little bit of a British culture among some people to, to you know, build them up and knock them down. But the other thing yeah. I think mainly is there are just some very sad, jealous people out there, usually also the same people who are trolls, who are, you know, yes, just rubbing their hands with glee. And, and, and unfortunately, and the world will always have people. There are dicks in every walk of life. And, <laughs> but now, of course, online, you have the ability for dicks to shout really loudly. And, of course, the dicks can shout really loudly and, and, and actually are going to proportionally have a greater say and feel like they have more power because non-dicks don't say stuff. <laughs> they just yeah, get on with right. their lives. <laughs> They're like, oh, that's a shame. Oh, business gone bust or, you know, they had their money in it. You go, well... Anyway, I've got to make an omelette and get to work. You know? yeah, um, right, yeah. yeah. Whereas I had the experience of being trolled and, you know, there was one particular person, definitely sad, they were actually an alcoholic and they died of alcoholism last right. year and they went completely bonkers and, you know, like really seriously bonkers. And at the time, because I was going bonkers, literally, um, I didn't react to that or didn't have the ability to react to that. And I was kind of glad yeah. because it was, it just sort of became so insane. It sort of cancelled yeah. itself out. But yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've learned to have, I, I was deeply affected by that, you know, a couple of years ago, but I learned to pity, you know, people. I see pity as, I, I absolutely hate the thought of being pitied. I, I think it's, you know, the thing I absolutely loathe. So it's, almost the, worst, it's almost the worst insult you can get in a way, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, don't pity me, for God's sake. But, but I pity, yeah. rather than be angry and resentful, I'm just, I just think, my God, how awful must your life be that yeah. you spend yeah. this time knocking people down, you know, when inventing yeah. stuff to make yourself, if that's the only way you can make yourself feel good, that I just yeah. feel terribly sorry for you. Um, but I think this, this, this segues nicely and I, I covers this almost every podcast it's about social media and you know I, I i'll admit that this week i really struggled i just not mentally i just mean i think i generally a very positive person i'm really getting to me the whole political atmosphere at the moment oh, yeah. like I, I mean it's getting to everyone but it's actually starting to affect me as, as, as i can feel my optimism sort of dripping out my ears and um, yes, yes. And, and when we spoke, we were talking about the bizarre sort of political situation. And essentially, what we 
what I think we were talking about was that we've lost the middle and in politics, we've lost the middle in a great many things. And I think that's really driven. I'll explain that better, but I think that's really driven by the, the way that digital marketing and media requires very clear differences. It requires yeah. clicks to happen, for clickbait or for people to move through sites that have to be yeah. very strong opinions. I'm a liberal. I'm a leftist. I'm, a, I'm right. I hate. Yeah. I'm, I love. You know, and, and yeah. that's, that's like sugar or alcohol or, or tobacco. It's, it's a hit, but they yeah, ultimately toxic. Yeah, um, yeah. And what it's toxic to is to debate and agreement and compromise and getting yeah. on with each other. I heard uh, Jonathan Dimbleby on the radio this morning briefly. He's about to do his very last edition of uh, Any Questions, you know, the radio mm. sort of political panel question thing. He's done over a thousand editions of it over 30 years. Uh, and John Humphreys asked, he was talking to him because it was the last edition and trailing it and saying, what do you think of the level of political discourse compared now compared to 30 years ago? And he just, he, he, there wasn't a second hesitation. He just said it's so much worse that, he's, you know, people shout, people are full of hate, people don't listen, people, uh, talk over each other, people only insist on airing their opinion, they're not interested in hearing, they're not interested in discussion, they're only interested in attack. Mm. Um, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but it was mm. it was very, very acute. And when he was saying it, I was thinking, God, it, yes, you were so right. And when you think back to, I mean, you're probably too young, but I'm not, and I, you know, I remember those sorts of programs in the, the days of, and, you know, I was, I was an anti- Thatcher campaigner in my time in the you know the late seventies uh, right through to the you know the mid eighties, um, but even when those discussions were being had and people, when they actually got the opportunity to discuss, they discussed in a more kind of rational, more civilized way actually. And I, so I th I think this whole thing, I I I find it quite scary because I think civilization itself is sort of under threat in a way. I don't think it's I don't think that's an exaggeration. No, I agree. What, what we refer, what we think of when we think of civilization, you know, a certain degree of of of, of rule keeping, a certain degree of behaviour, a certain degree of consideration, cooperation, fairness, cooperation. We need to be the, the the, the, yeah. We need to be the ant colony. People need to do different things, get on with each other, and yeah. communicate but with that's each other all to, under for the greater good. Yeah, I think it's under threat on a global scale. Putin, what did he say yesterday or this morning that the, uh, liberal, the liberal yeah. age is over? Yeah, and <laughs> I find that absolutely terrifying. Well, he would um, say that because he's been spending the last five years using digital uh, undermining of democracy. <laughs> he, I, I mean, know, he's basically. I know. Uh, he's fueled Brexit. He's fueled Trump. You know, he's know. fueling the yellow vest. You know, ev yeah. everything. Yeah. He's just creating. He's undermining Western society, and and, it, and then he's Trump is finding them. Yeah, and Trump to say publicly, and you know, the same event to sort of, sort of te in a teasing way, don't you go messing with my election, Vladimir? In a, you know, both of them laughing. It's just. I mean, I'm, I don't believe in. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a middle of the road liberal thinking, slightly left of centre, middle-aged bloke, you know. Um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Sorry? Again. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> yeah, so I'm not I'm not kind of a crazy conspiracy theorist, but I am scared. I think that you know the world is in a very very weird place. Um, it, in I a way that I've never known it. Yeah, in the eighties. So I grew up so a quite politically aware sort of teenager, and I grew up watching the Falklands War and sort of trying to understand yeah. that and the machinations and Thatcher and the left and you know, and all this kind of stuff. And basically, politics then seemed like a really vibrant, interesting place. And basically, if somebody slept with the wrong person, they generally just resign. You know, and, yeah, it, and potentially right. now, I mean, obviously the, the sort of, the, the morality then is different from it is, is now, I, I'm personally not very keen on, uh, on, on sleeping with people outside marriage, but I also understand that people do that and that's, that's the real world and, you know, but that, and that might be personal choice. That doesn't really matter. But the point is that people pretty quickly sort of put their hand up and went, I'm really sorry, what a dick I am. And, yeah. you know, I think it was David Mellor was caught chucking a toe or something unpleasant like that. And it was a <laughs> massive scandal. It rolled and rolled and rolled. Now, if that happened, people would go, oh, let's talk about that for two days. Oh, what else is going on on Twitter? Um, and, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. You know, oh, it, oh, they prime minister. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, somebody has created an enormous, incredibly re- relevant Ferrari that, you know, to, to the running of the country during the most important political period in its history since the Second World War. And anyway, and I think, you know, with not, I really hate being negative, but I think that I think people are really massively underestimating what could happen with Brexit. I, I think that Britain basically would won't be in the G5 or G7 or whatever. It, it would completely, potentially implode. I think our economy completely implode. I think basically it, it would be the fall of the UK. If you look at history. I really like history. History is interesting. It's everyone has their period. Our period was essentially the Victorian era. You know, we've been sort of fighting to stay there for quite a while. It's the housing period that everyone talks about. That kind of continues around the Second World War. Then we got smashed in the face. Then we had a real change, social change, which was really quite positive. Uh, and then basically, for various reasons I probably don't understand, we're, I think we're about to just completely drop off the map. And almost literally, almost like, you know, people will look at our little island and go, oh, that's nice. There's Britain. They were all right, weren't they? <laughs> Didn't they used to be famous? Yeah. Well, what <laughs> I think, I think it's very, very good twat, that you're right. <laughs> I, I, hope, I um, hope you're wrong, but I think there's a very good chance that you're right. And it's a, it's a funny thing because we're, you know, you were saying about, you know, you watch these, these sort of big events happening and then you go, oh, oh well, let's do something else. Um, actually, we kind of have to do that in a sense. So, so I, I'll be, you know, at my computer, um, uh, I don't know, reading something that makes me deeply miserable about the state of affairs, whether it's uh, the, the, the climate change or, or politics or whatever. And then I think, well, I, I better do a tweet now about a nice new jumper that we've made. And um, mm. so it's, I'm, you have to sort of somehow carry the notion around that you're allowed to be somewhat grumpy and depressed and, and stressed and distressed about the world situation. But also, you know, unless you want to be a complete nihilist, you have to sort of carry on somehow. So we, you know, I have yeah. to be, I think that's one of the na- things about the, in the nature of entrepreneurship is that you, you sort of have to be positive as well. Um, so 
I want, I want to create jobs, for example, with my company. Okay. We have All I've created so far is one part-time job. I want to create numerous full-time jobs for people. But I'm also acutely aware in the back of my mind that, that you know, growth for growth's sake, either in an individual company or in an entire economy, is no longer uh, the way thing, the game can be played. We've got to be do more and both, both more and less than that. So it's a very sort of strange dilemma. I'm sort of driven forward to achieve things, but also thinking in the back of my mind, maybe it'd be better if we all stopped trying to achieve things. <laughs> but we should all just stop making stuff. And you know, it's really interesting what you're saying because I was thinking about this before um, we spoke, and I think I spoke to um, podcast number seven E Jim um, about this. Is, is essentially the whole model. The probably the biggest <coughs> problem we've got right now is that our whole model is based on growth but not just you know it, it's basically you buy shares and you don't just say oh i've got a share of profit now so i'll get my you know 10 grand every year and thanks very much that's lovely yeah. you say no it could be 15 grand then 20 then 30 then 50 you know it's got to go bigger 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 and by definition because there's only a certain amount of resource available in the world whether that's money or minerals or people or energy is somebody has to lose out or something has to lose out and what's losing out is that the poor are getting poorer, um, uh, or rather disparity. Actually, that's not true. On a worldwide scale, we are getting richer as a people, but the disparity is getting greater because we're yeah. having so many, you know, leap forward in vaccination and social care and education, etc. But what's happening is people are getting more downtrodden because somebody's got to lose out to get that extra growth. And, of course, the greatest loser is the environment because if you want to make a T-shirt for one pound... You have got to yeah. fuck a load of people and a load of the world to get there, you know, because you are going to cut corners. You'll cut every single corner for oh, every course, yeah. tiny increment of margin to do that. And so this comes back to what you're trying to create is you, you have a, an idea in your mind of what you want to do that you know, makes you feel good or, or, or you believe in. And when I, you know, I, I created Volpine, because I wanted to change the face of cycling. I thought the cycling was not inclusive and it was uh, too serious and I wanted to make it a joyful um, sort of place where everyone could come cycling. So I wanted to encourage cycling because I think cycling changed the world lots of ways with environmental health and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I also wanted to sell some stuff and make a really big company, you know, because I'm also a capitalist. <laughs> I'm a leftist, a leftist capitalist. I'm a champagne player. Yes, whatever. well, me too. Um, and, uh, and what I discovered in that process is we want to grow really, really fast. That's really bad for your health. It, it's incredibly stressful. It's very high risk. And um, it, 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 it's not good uh, for me. Yeah. I don't want to do that. So now I've reacted to that with Barm and I've decided, okay, so I'm going to create a small company and I'm going to maintain it. And my aim is to keep it as a small company. So actually, it's interesting is I don't want to create jobs with Barm, not because I don't want to. I'd love to. I created jobs with Volpine. But one of the hardest things I did, and I've just realized this, one of the hardest things I ever had to do in my life was, was uh, I still, it still gets me, but basically to lay those people off was fucking horrific. Yeah. And, yes, yeah. and it's very deep-seated thing there that I never want to have to do that again. And so actually, I was thinking from, don't have employees just so I can get my cost down, but it's actually <laughs> frightened of ever having to do that again. So anyway, yeah. that's one thing. But my thing with Fram is that I want to help 
change the mental health agenda because I had a breakdown and because I've always yeah. been quite a sensitive sort of chap sort of got beaten up at school for being a bit too sort of soft and gay in inverted commas and that always really pissed me off because I was like well no I just like books and talking about emotions <laughs> that should be yeah. okay um and so now actually <laughs> you know that is much more okay I see uh, teenagers guys in the 20s who are way way more open in their emotions and I also see men 40s, 50s, and 60s who are relieved now that the agenda has changed, they can talk more openly. And yeah, because they never yeah. could, they had to suppress that. And there's other men who are deeply uncomfortable with this. I mean, really, really fucking hate it. Because, of course, that, that's not what they've ever known. They're still emotional creatures. They still hurt. They still cry or try not to cry. Um, and those are the people I really kind of reach, which is the hardest thing. But, but I want to, I just saw a. I didn't see men's brands as being kind and, and being realistic. Um, you know, you have these, I, yeah, I love, yeah. you know, you, you flick through a men's magazine, it's beautiful men, incredibly sculpted, sculpted men who are simply perfect live driving around in vintage Porsches. And you just think, yeah, nobody does that. You all go for a poo. Yeah. You, you all, you all <laughs> cry when you break your leg, you know, and, um, uh, and actually I don't, but what, what the contradiction is that, so I could wang on about this. You'll have to stop me a second. But basically, the contradiction is, of course, is I love beautiful things. So I love beautiful yes. photographs. You know, I, 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 want to, I want to create a beautiful designs. So I don't want imperfection. I don't want it to be completely just messy and dirty. But at the and same time, I want it to be human. Yes. But you, and I, I understand that. And I understand that, that drive, of course. And I have that as well. And, and so, yes, there is, I think it's just a key, it's in a, it's human nature to want to sort of, to create, and at least we want to create something positive, not something negative. But we, I think we, the, the, the dilemma is that we have to find a way to do it that isn't inherently destructive. And the, um, your, your point about, it's interesting what different routes, so with, with Volpine you're saying you created jobs and then you had to uncreate those jobs, and that was a very mm. painful experience. Um, that, and that's what I so say, you're not doing that with farm. And, and I completely respect that and understand it. I, I think I'm just coming at it from a slightly different angle, which is that I, the reason I want to create jobs is because if I want to make clothes, then somebody has to make them. Um, and it's, if I create jobs and have them, uh, the, the clothes made sort of within the company, by, you know, largely anyway, um, with a small team of people that I know personally and that I pay properly and that can work flexibly to suit their lifestyle etc 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 then that's a way of keeping it small so although i want to create jobs i'm not talking about creating a you know factories with multiple floors and thousands mm. of machines mm. i'm talking about creating a couple of dozen jobs but the, because the alternative is that i for a person like me is if i want to make something i either have to have it made overseas in a factory which I've probably never visited and I have absolutely no idea how people are treated and how they're being paid, mm -hmm. etc. Or I do what I did with Shackleton, which is my previous brand. I go around and find factories in the UK to make those things. And that's, that's, that's a perfectly valid route. The trouble with that is that I'm, I, I still, the reason I didn't do that this time is that I still feel at a distance. I still feel removed from the process, even if the factory is only in Leicester. Mm -hmm. um, I I still don't 
really feel as though I'm close to the people who are actually doing the making. And uh, and the other one is an economic one that, you know, if you go to a factory in the UK, uh, you have to make a minimum of 100 items or 200 items or whatever. Yeah. And and I wanted to make one item or 10 items and, and see if we can sell them. There's always a compromise because, for example, our knitwear, we're not making in-house because I don't have the capital to buy the knitting machines mm. or indeed the skill base to make them. So we're, but the knitwear, so, but the, the factories that are making the knitwear are tiny little family factories, one in, in Channel Islands and one in Midlands. They're tiny with a few dozen, you know, a couple of dozen people at most working in them. I'm, I know, you know, I've come to know the owners and so on. And that's, so there's always a dilemma. You, to go back to the bigger thing, you can't make something without, without sort of making ripples and waves in, in some way. I suppose our job, I mean, our job as in you and I, people like us, is to make those waves positive waves rather than negative waves. And it's a really difficult thing. We're, we are part of the problem. Um, uh, by virtue of getting out of bed in the morning, we're part of the problem. Um, humanity you know. is different from... So what happens in... In, in an ecology without humans is that eventually you find a symbiosis. The classic example is the fox and the rabbits. You have too many foxes, all the rabbits disappear because they've all been eaten, therefore the, rab- the foxes die because there's no rabbits. And eventually you find an equilibrium yeah. and you've got two fox, you know, you've got, a, you've got a family of foxes and you've got a couple of hundred rabbits and, and it sorts itself out. And well, everybody has to do that. Apart from yeah. the rabbits. <laughs> yeah. Things yeah. die, things grow, that happens. You leave that, it just turns. The problem with humans is humans are really intelligent, um, yeah. and humans go, "Ooh, I want more than that! I'm going to start yeah. doing this. I'm going to start doing that." And and of course, what they do is they what we've got to now is a situation where we've created an economic system where we have to have growth. There have to be more things. There have to be more things, and we have to create more demand. There now has to be breakfast cereals with chocolate or with cherries, or you know, there have to be because you have yeah. to find something new for growth. And so you get this diabolical. Um, sort of move away from what you may be required. I don't know if there was some specific point, point in history where we were sort of all right. You know, if we could throw in some modern medicine into, you know, the Victorian era or something like that, I, who knows? But then you had the Industrial Revolution, etc. I don't think there is any real answer. But the point is, the net is negative. It has to be negative, And there is no fucking way, if you look at, at human society at the moment, that we are ever going to get back to a positive unless there is really, really fundamental change, not just saying, oh, you know what, we're just going to take things out of plastic bottles and put them in cans. You know, that's like, that's really nice. You know, that's great. If I was a drink manufacturer, I'd hope I'd be doing that. If that, if that hap- happens to be the better thing, I don't even know. But that's not, you know, it feels like it has to be a capitalism or a revolution because otherwise we're just going to kill ourselves. And, you know, this is the thing that so my, I have a really close friend who works for a major international uh, ecology tra- charity and it fucks him up because he gets to see the data. You know, it yeah. scares the shit out of him. And when he talks about it, it scares the shit out of me. And I just have to, like most people, carry on. But that's another problem with humanity is we can, we can turn a blind eye. And then of course, yeah. what I do is I go, one, you know, some days I go, no, fuck this, and we need to make change. And you go, how am I going to do that? <laughs> how do we actually affect major change? And, you know, why the hell are we not just saying, you know what, we're just going to build a load of wind turbines, a load of wave turbines, 
solar energy, we're basically going to give free solar panels to every single household. They're going to create their energy. You know, it's going to cost us a shitload of money, but basically we might live. <laughs> and, uh, you know, instead of going, oh, well, we're not really going to subsidize that, that this year because, well, you know, we really need to grow gas energy or something. And it's like, because yeah. that's the political atmosphere. So anyway, to finish my thing is, <laughs> to bring it to some sort of conclusion, because you could just wang on about this forever, is um, that for from the obvious question is, what's from doing? Um, and, and that's something I think about a lot and increasingly. And what I said is people say, okay, what's the provenance of your, your kit? And so I always, you know, have fabrics and trims. I know where they come from. Like you say, I know who makes them, you know, that they're properly treated. But fundamentally, my ecological um, uh, uh, policy is that I make really good stuff that lasts a long time. I can't bear the thought of something being worn once and thrown away. I just think it's yes. absolutely yes. abhorrent. Um, yes. Always have done, just because I don't like waste. But now, you know, knowing what goes into creating any garment, yeah. you know, I, you get the sort of trolls on Instagram now, because that's mostly what we, we use. And they go, oh, yeah, you can buy one for £10 from <laughs> a brand I shall not name. And you go, well, yes, you can. But first of all, it's not going to be good enough, which means you throw it away because it will fall apart. Because for that £10, somebody somewhere is getting stuffed. You know, maybe they're using child labor. Who knows? But something is wrong. It is absolutely wrong. Yeah, you cannot make a waterproof wrong. jacket for £10. You can't. You just can't. No. You know, no, I know you can't. And I know you should can't. not <laughs> be doing that. <laughs> um, no, I agree. I, I agree with and, you entirely about that. So we, we, one of the, the ways I kind of help myself to sleep at night with this whole, you know, should we be making things at all, is exactly that. So we're, we're making stuff that will last a really, really, really long time. So... Um, the, you know, the, the jumper that we've just started shipping out, which is a Guernsey, made in Guernsey, um, I've got one very, very similar to that, which I bought when my 37-year-old was, was in, a, in a buggy. Um, mm. So it's, it's 35 years old, and it's still going strong. So that's what I was trying to create now. I want people to buy one, really, and just have it for the rest of their lives. And the same so we're, we're saying, for example, and a lot of people criticize me for this, saying that's never going to work. We've said, if you buy something from us, we'll give you a lifetime repair guarantee. So in 20 years from now, assuming the business is still going, that is, you can send it, if you, if you, you wear through the, the elbow, you can send it back to us and we'll patch it and send it back to you. Um, and because I want, I want people, you know, I want people to sort of grow old in these clothes, really. And funnily enough, I don't know about you, for someone who's in, directly involved in the, the world of fashion in the broadest sense, I buy almost no clothes at all. I'm really badly dressed, if you know what I mean. I, 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 I buy sort of one pair of jeans every three years and wear them until they fall to pieces. Mm. Um, one sort of cotton work jacket every four or five years. Um, I, I don't, I'm really interested in clothes, but I own hardly any clothes, um, which is a kind of strange thing because I like things that just last forever. So, mm. um, it's when I was, that, that's uh, what I'm yeah. trying to do is to make stuff people will pass on to their kids, really. Yeah, as much as I you can do with clothing. Great. I, I love the fact <clears> that I was looking, I was um, uh, tidying up my kids' clothing this morning and I was putting them on, you know, back of the drawers and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, actually, especially because we were about to talk, I thought almost all of this clothing is hand me down. Um, yeah. You know, this is stuff from neighbors and friends that's been passed on. And it's yeah. really interesting because we do that with our kids. Because we don't really mind. I 
certainly don't mind that much whether they're that cool or trendy or whatever. They just need no. to, you know, have stuff that fits and is comfortable. And um, so I really hate child fashion as well. That makes me feel very uncomfortable. It's like good clothing for children that keeps yeah. them, you know, safe and warm and uh, works and lasts. Great. But yeah. sort of throwing but... fashion for kids, I think, is particularly strange because I also think that's, for me, I just sort of go, well, hang about, is that for you or for them? You know, but yeah, uh, that's an opinion. But I agree, but I think, I think there are exceptions to that. There's, there are some, there are some children's clothing items. Like, and I've got to imagine when my, I can't remember the names of the brands, but going back thirty years when my children were little, that you just kind of knew that something was very robust. I remember, actually, I do remember. I remember my my son when he was a little toddler used to have a pair of dungarees, and they were made by a company called Oshkosh Bagosh, which just stuck mm, in my head. I remember such that a brand, weird name. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's still around, but they, they looked and felt like they would serve generations of children. And, of course, they probably did because they, they, would have, they were then worn by his younger sister. They were then passed on to some, you know, niece, nephew, cousin that you'd got young it children. It quality. You, you would expect yeah. it, you know. You wouldn't buy it otherwise. They, those things kind of have, do have a life. And, but it, and there was a brand of T-shirts and things that we used to buy for the kids. I can't remember what they were called either. Uh, cloth kits, that's right, I'm going right back to the 80s now. Um, and they, they were made with a certain amount of integrity and durability, and they did get passed on and, and probably served dozens of children. Um, so, but what I really, like you, I really hate when, you know, children kind of get dressed as mini, mini adult fashion icons, like they're sort of little avatars of the, of the parent, you know, so it's, that's the thing that hacks me off. <laughs> Um, we're sounding like grumpy old men now. So that we are. Well, I am. Oh, I'm always looking for segues. So, <laughs> so, um, so age. So what I'm very interested in is that. So I get occasionally I get somebody saying about Fran. They go, "Oh, Nick, you really need to watch it because your models are getting, you know, are older, and you know you're really losing out on the your main market." And I go, "What's my main market?" They go, "Oh, well, you're obviously twenty year old guys. They're going to spend the money." I go, "But you know, twenty year old guys." Great, but I'm not talking to 20-year-old guys. No, me neither. A 20-year-old guy, 25-year-old guy wants to buy a front jacket. That's fantastic. But, you know, I'm not trying to be everyone else. And what I identify, I think you should always, my feeling is if you want to create the strongest brand, create the brand that you identify with most, that you believe in, that that you can can inhabit yourself. And for me, from like Volkine is essentially where I am in my life right now. I, I am, I am a, middle-aged bloke who wants to be masculine but in a different kind of definition of masculine from what we would have been 20 years ago i want to be creative and interested in the world and i really really want the base and i really want us to get on with each other and i really want you know uh men to be healthy and i want to be healthy and i really like jackets so i just sort of created a brand that's basically what i think and and that yeah. means that i ha- i really intimately understand it and i think that comes across so, so people yeah. say, how do you create a great brand? And I go, because I am it. <laughs> and yeah. I'm, well, I'm the same, that. exactly. That's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, I could, the, the classic, you know, both, neither of us are classical marketers. And classical marketing, of course, says that you should start with the market. So you, you kind of think, where's the gap? Where's the opportunity? Where's the growth? Build the brand there. I'm, I'm absolutely have, I have less than zero interest in doing that. Absolutely no interest at all. What I created, with, first with Shackleton and then with Blackshaw and Blackshaw more consciously was a brand of clothes that I wanted to wear 
being a then late 50s and a now 60-year-old bloke who lives by the sea. I just thought, that's what I like to look like. And when I go into town, I still like to look like that. So I like to wear sort of slightly beaten up cotton jackets that are fading and baggy jeans and, and boots in the winter and trainers in the summer. And But, but you know, cottons and canvases and wax things, um, that's what I want to wear, what I want to look like. And that's the brand I'm going to build. Now, whether or not there is a market for that, we will discover over the next year. <laughs> um, I think there is. Uh, I've only just begun to tap into it. If I'm wrong, then I just have to say, oh, well, I was wrong. But I'm, I'm absolutely not going to suddenly go into follow a fashion. I'm, not, I'm just not interested. I couldn't give a damn about that. Well, and also, I don't think either of us would be good at it. I'm not... Uh, I, no. So I, in my consultancy, I can make things look cool, and I sort of have a fairly clear formula of how to do that. But it is a formula, and I really hate doing formulaic stuff. But um, I've sort of come to the... What I was thinking, actually, was when I went off on my brand sort of thing, was actually I was thinking about age. And I was thinking about, it's interesting because you, you talk, you know, about being older. And so I'm 46 now. And I, my main sort of view of age is I, I, I go, what? I'm 46. Really? Because <laughs> yeah. I genuinely still think I'm 35. I wake up in the morning and, you know, a little number ticks in front of my eyes. I'm making this up. But, and it says, you're 35, mate. And then I look in the mirror and go, fucking hell, I went great. And I've got yeah. big crow's feet. How did that happen? That's weird. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and, well, again, uh, I think, you know, we're alike in that sense. And I think that's probably typical. Is, you know, I'm 60. I, I, I just got married. I feel like I'm 40. And, and the, the, right. my body is telling me I'm 60. You know, there are things, things happening to, you know, if you turn too quickly, you're going to wrench your knee in a way that I didn't do mm. even five years ago. You, you know, the, the, there's those sorts of, things that begin to happen around 60 you haven't hit them yet so i but but mentally in my sort of heart and soul i'm i'm i like being 60 it's a really interesting place to be because i can look back to being in my 30s and 40s and remember some of the energy and the passion but i can also sort of adopt a certain kind of whether it's genuine or not adopt a sort of wise old man kind of stance and I don't feel the need to impress anybody anymore. I'm and much, much more confident than I was. Sorry? An inner calm? An inner calm, yes. I worry, I still worry about whether, you know, all entrepreneurs wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and worry about whether they're going to go bust. And that still happens. Hmm. But, yes, overall, the, the inner calm bit comes from, if I worry up, wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, those, you know, the wee wee hours, like, they're the, they're the scary ones, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. Um, if I wake up in the morning and think, oh, shit, it's all going to go pear-shaped and I can't fulfill any of the things I said I would do, etc., there's another little voice now that says, and, you know, is anyone going to die kind of thing? No, they're not. Mm. If this doesn't work, you will find a way forward and to make a contribution to pay your bills, basically to be a human. It's, I love Blackshaw and I'm passionate about it, but... I absolutely, I'm not going to die in a ditch over it because no. I've been there and done that in a way, sort of mentally. Mm. I've had my breakdown, two big ones, um, one back in the early 1990s and one just three years ago. And mm. I'm, um, 
that's enough for me. Thank you very much. I don't want, I don't want to have them again. So it, there is a kind, oh, I don't know if it's going to calm, quite, make it sound too simple, but it, there is something, there is a calming voice that just says, it's all going to be fine, you know. It, for you me, I have to do the best you can do. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that's it. For me, I, I like the word context. So, yeah. you know, when, when, you're, when I, I, so I had a reasonably rough time when I was a kid, not all the time, but, you know, whatever, and, and, and my context was actually quite a positive one because I didn't really know any different. And then when I became a teenager, I understood different families, different worlds and, and contexts. I became quite sullen and down. I was, I was quite angry. And then, you know, in my 20s, I was probably also less healthy than I am now because I doing exercise in my back and all this kind of crap and basically in my 20s I was still quite angry and then I met my wife and then suddenly I was really happy and I got better and, uh, so anyway I, what I've got to now is basically I've made a load of mistakes and I understand myself far better than I ever have done you know you find that by pushing the envelope that's one of the reasons I enjoy being an entrepreneur is I want to find out where the edges are I'm fascinated oh, yeah. to learn more yeah. about myself and about the world and about what I'm capable of yeah, I think that's a real driver for me, actually, is I'm really desperate to know what I'm capable of. And yeah. so, I, you know, and just try and fill in the things that I'm bad at. So, and, and, and this constant sort of trying to be humble and trying not to think that, you, oh, I've sorted it now, great, done. Uh, for me, that is very much around my marriage and never assuming that just because we've been in love until now that we're always going to be, so I've got to keep working on it. Uh, anyway, I'm going for one. So basically, at 46, <laughs> I'm pretty, I've got a pretty good context for where, who I am, where I sit in the, in the world, what I'm good and what I'm bad at. And that gives me a lot of comfort. I also know what it takes to break me physically yeah. and mentally. I've had two very, you know, I've, had, I've just had spells in hospital where I've pushed myself far too far on the bike or in crashes and I've, I've you know had a mental breakdown and I know that well, I'm pretty well what I'm capable of as a rule but I know that I could push myself and basically I quite like that I, and what I'm not scared of is dying um, I don't think I've ever really been scared of dying what I'm scared of is losing the ability to do the things that I like doing mm. and, and so I get mm. that physic either mentally or physically you know I, I I love the fact that I can ride my bike and I can, you know, do pull-ups and that I can hold my kids. And it scares me that, you know, especially because I had very back problems and I couldn't have done those things in my 20s. I know that I think that that would be a really devastating thing if I you know, lost the use of my legs or something like that. So yeah, yeah. that's what scares me is actually just trying to stay healthy, really. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think the health thing becomes more and more important um, mental and physical health as, as you get older as well. I, I, I um, in my darkest sort of periods, I had you know, for quite a long time. I was a smoker. I, I stopped completely some time ago now, and it would it's inconceivable now for me the idea of going back to smoking. And I, I kind of, I'm sort of revolted and, and horrified by it. Um, it's bizarre. It's a really strange um, thing. But but I am also I'm not a sort of in denial you know I I remember the pleasure that I took from it and the or the, the comfort the solace that I would mm. take from a, a cigarette you know and and the ritualistic aspect of it and I remember those very clearly and quite vividly so yeah well, they have to be sort of replaced with something else more positive and I and I think I found subtle little ways of, of doing that. Um, but now, of course, I wouldn't dream of doing that because I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so far into the second half of my life 
being 60, that I, I actually, if I'm going to get pleasure and, and fulfillment, I now have to be, I now have to be very careful and nurturing of myself. <laughs> so, which is another reason why I couldn't go out and get a proper job, because I think it would drive me crazy or make me ill very, very quickly. Um, you know, a, a nine to five thirty job, but you know, let's say a marketing role in a in some kind of corporation, and mm. uh, I'd apply for those jobs, and then we're drawn to them because I just think, oh god, it ter- absolutely terrifies me. I don't care how much money they're paying. I just, you know, why would you know? I could earn two or three times what I'm earning now, but I'd probably kill myself, and I that's that's you know too big a price to pay. So I will never I ever do that ever. Um, I, I, <laughs> I tried to get those jobs when um, I, I, I needed to earn money, like really yeah. serious needs to earn money. And I applied for those jobs when Bob uh, um, went bust, and I, I didn't get anywhere. I just think because entrepreneurs scare people. I think yes, you know, I think that's true as well. Fantastic skills, but unfortunately, because you're tend to be an automatic innovator, you can also, I, I assume, can also be quite a disruptive influence on a company. So I think mm. in some places, like a startup or a growth stage company, that's probably quite useful. You know, if an entrepreneur is hiring an entrepreneur, they probably, you know, sort of twig with them. But if you, if I walked into O2 or Kellogg's, <laughs> people are like, yeah, get out now, <laughs> go away. <laughs> yeah, causing a lot of problems. But I think that being an entrepreneur is actually about self-expression. I think that I, I, I'm an entrepreneur so that I can be myself. And yeah. I've realized, having done consultancies and you know, remembering what I was like when I was doing the 95, most people do do that. So, you know, it, it, it's about, I, I think I have a high bar for risk. And, and that risk is to do with, I, I, I can live with quite a lot of discomfort. Um, in and risk, you know, how you define that? It's quite hard for my wife because her bar is lower. So me being an entrepreneur <laughs> is, is tough on Emily, and so we, we we find better ways to deal with that. But that 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 is one of those things that you you can never quite gel. But the yeah. other thing is because I'm such a <laughs> individual person, let's say, is um that that the best way for me to channel that is actually I think probably why I create brands is because. Yeah, I talk about brands. God, it's a fucking self-help session now. But is I create brands that mirror what I'm interested in because I'm basically doing it instead of painting and yeah. doing it instead of yeah. making music. And I, I do it's a direct connection. Yeah. yeah. I do, do, sorry to interrupt, but you just made me think of something which I often compromise with when I'm thinking. You know what? That why would I keep doing this? Making, you know, why do I want to open a clothing factory when I've never run a clothing factory before? Why do I want to, etc., mm. etc.? Et and the reason is that I, I think it is. I think it's an art. So other people, not other people, might dispute this, but I would equate it with a kind of artistic endeavour. So whilst it's not, I don't see myself as the the musician on the stage or the artist painting. What the, the analogy I do often draw with myself is the sort of auteur kind of film producer director so you know i've got the concepts i uh my producer role is to go out and raise the money and hustle and get it all get things moving the director role is then to make you know how do we actually make the things beautiful how do you know and of course making a movie involves lots and lots of different skilled people but Mm. somebody has to be steering it and so that's this, I think it's quite a, a nice analogy from that point of view. And it, 
the reason I find it a comforting analogy is that one of the people, the kinds of people I've always most admired, are not the, the actors in in the in the movies that I love, but the people who created the concept, made given it the vision, who've gone out, you know, taken it around fifty studios before they decided to build their own studio to make it because no one else mm. do it, etc. And I think that's that's it's it's a helpful analogy because it's boosting for morale. It's it's sort of self flattery, but sometimes you need that. To, you know, you need to make yourself feel that you you're more than just Mr. Grad Grind, the Victorian factory owner. But um, because that's Re- to go back relevant. to the conversation, to, people to can fit think in that. the world. Yeah, yeah. I want I want I want to feel like I'm doing something positive and creative, and indeed making something appealing and you know occasionally beautiful, and something valuable and worthwhile. And so, I, you know, yes, I like to sort of, I, I like to think of Blackshaw as, you know, it's the movie. It's just that it's, it's not a movie, it's a factory. But, uh, and it might take a long time to make it, but one day it's going to, you know, win an Oscar. That's, <laughs> that, <laughs> so I, I, we've done, uh, so I don't always prescribe it being an hour, but what I've decided is we've talked lots about some big stuff, it's been really good, is, is I can't not talk about films now. Because I love movies. <laughs> yes, me too. So, so basically, the things My I love that aren't, aren't people are basically cycling and movies and thunderstorms. And basically, <laughs> those are the three things that if I could have in my life, I'm pretty happy with, you know, with that anything else. But, um, so, so favorite movie, go. Uh, the Deer Hunter. Very unfashionable now. Is it? Uh, but, yeah, because it has a, it has a very questionable, Sort of political stance on you know, on the Viet Cong oh. and so on. Um, but yeah, it's but it's, a it's, it's still of an era. Piece of work. I, I think this yeah. you can't judge uh, films on a current morality. <laughs> um, well, yeah, all my, my favourite films are from that era. Um, uh, Tess of the Durbervilles, uh, uh, also uh, somewhat controversial now because it's made by Roman Polanski, mm-hmm. um, who is now notorious for all kinds of other reasons in the Me Too era. And, and, and again, this is a big mor- moral question. It's about, you know, Woody Allen, Rome Polanski, is, does amazing art by bad people make it less amazing art? <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, it absolutely and, doesn't. And, you know, yeah. I, I, I completely agree with all the people who say, that, you know, they wish they'd never worked with Woody Allen. However, and I completely understand that, and I'm not an apologist for Rome Polanski or anybody else, but the fact is, you know, Woody Allen's best three films are amongst the best three films of their nature that have ever been made. So there's no getting away from that. Roman Polanski's one of the greatest directors, you know, in the history of filmmaking. And Tess of the Durbervilles, it, 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 well, Tess it's called, isn't it? It's just utterly, utterly heartbreaking and beautiful. And, and there it is. So, yeah, all my favourite movies actually are from the late 70s, early 80s. They, you know, they include... All the Godfather films, including my favourite Godfather Three, which most people hate, but I love. Um, oh, I think yeah. Um, <laughs> I love yeah. it for the, the the opera step scene at the end, um, when his daughter is is shot, and it just I cannot bear to watch that scene. Yeah, I have to watch it through because Al Pacino's howling face at the end, I just think is that's art, and it it echoes everything from Caravaggio through to Francis Bacon and. I mean, you've you got me started now. <laughs> I think movies are incredibly important. Oh, I, I could talk about movies for weeks and weeks and weeks without <laughs> breathing, basically. But, but I, I, I totally agree on Godfather 1 and 2. It's a funny art form, though, because 
with guys off, and yet it's surrounded by a thousand, you know, 990, oh, 99.99% of movies are rubbish. But there's a kind of 0.1% that is sort of transcendental almost. Okay, so, so that's <laughs> interesting. I'm, I'm somebody... Middleton. So we lost Simon there for technical reasons. Um, I think we were probably just going to spend a couple of hours talking about movies while you sort of left and made your tea or something. Um, although I should do a movie podcast, definitely. I said I'd do one with Matt Stevens, Matt. Um, and what I was going to say was because it's so hard and because I could go on for so long about my favourite movies of all time, is I would just say the three that I'd really love you to go and see if you haven't already the three films that have really inspired me over the last year i love being surprised by new movies and them sort of going into my sort of pantheon of the great stuff and um they would be in no particular order roma by alfonso Cuaron, which is on netflix which considering it's black and white it's just feels like it's colorful it's just incredibly beautiful amazingly well told sort of intimate story and uh it's just there is one particularly harrowing scene um, which I won't spoil uh, spoiler for you, but uh, um, but otherwise it's just an incredible sort of journey. So that's amazing. Caron is probably the most humane director I can think of. And then uh, First Man, um, which um, God, I've just forgotten his name. The director, the guy who did um, the drumming thing, shit, um, and um, and La La Land, Damien Chazelle, and. He- <laughs> I don't know if it matters. Anyway, so First Man, uh, I think it really underperformed at the cinema. It is incredibly beautiful. Uh, I kind of love everything Ryan Gosling does. Uh, he picks really well, and um, it really makes you think. And it actually made me really, really want to go into space, even though I really hate flying. Uh, <laughs> so um, uh, that's a good recommendation. Uh, space is beautiful, so is First Man. Um, and then um, the other one is, uh, you really should see it. If you're an adult and you do or don't like animation you've got to see this anyway it's spider-man into the spider-verse it's the best marvel movie and it's probably the best animated movie in history and i used to work in animation and i really take my animation seriously spider-verse is fucking incredible i mean it, it literally changed me um it is perfect in every way the script the story the animation the creativity the breaking new ground uh, everything i i just absolutely adore that film uh, it's probably a top 10 uh, already so um yeah go and see them if you haven't already uh films are great so is creativity it was a really nice chat with simon um he's a smashing bloke um it's interesting because sometimes when you're so similar to someone you, you don't want to roll around the same subjects you don't want to just agree you want to still discuss things you know um so i was trying to find difference um because i think it's important to find difference um of course we're all different um and I'll put links to his, uh, his work and his company in, uh, in the uh, biography. And um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you would like to check out Fran Jacket, it's on franjacket.com. Um, if you would like to see movies, you go to a cinema and a telly. I think I just lost my thread. So thank you very much for listening and I'll see you again soon. Take care. Bye.